Welcome back to Merendiando, part of Radio Luna Theater. In today's episode, we chat with mother, human, playwright, and neurologist, Suvendrani Lena. Suvendrani works as a neurologist at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health and the Women's College Hospital. She has been an artist-in-residence at several artistic and medical organizations, including the Theater Center and the University of Toronto. Suvendrani is the writer of Rubble, a theater project currently in development at Aluna, inspired by the poetry of Palestinian writers Lena Khalif Tufaha and Mahmoud Darwish. We chatted with Suvendrani about how her role as a doctor influenced her as a playwright and vice versa, and about what solidarity looks like in her work. Let's get started. Welcome to the podcast. Yay. Thank you. <laughs> Pleasure to be here. You are many things, an artist, a doctor, a human being on this earth. And uh, we are wondering, as a neurologist, as one of your many hats, what made you want to study the brain specifically? Okay, well, maybe I'll answer that question backwards. Yeah. I don't think that if I hadn't, if I had not had the opportunity to study the brain, Uh, I don't think I would have become a doctor. Mm. Mm. And what happened for me was it's a very kind of common narrative among South Asians. And I'm the oldest daughter in my family. So I'll be quite frank. Mm -hmm. um, at about 28, I had a bit of a crisis. I had always wanted to be a writer and it wasn't something that my family supported. Let's put it like that. <laughs> and so I caved and, went to med school, which is what they really wanted me to do. And then in my second year of med school, and I was at UBC, uh, we had a neuroanatomy lab where you get to see slices of the brain. So it's somebody's brain yeah. sliced up into these tiny, tiny sections. And you're looking at them under the microscope. And first of all, it's beautiful visually because they're all stained and there are different parts and Neurons look like branches, which is endlessly fascinating to me, just the idea of the branches. Yeah. But the other piece was that it really landed somehow that the kind of the materiality of consciousness, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. Like by the materiality, do you mean like you the physical? Yes. Of it? Everything yeah. in a way. So it, this is kind of a philosophical statement and people who are religious will disagree with me in a sense. And I'm, I'm a spiritual person in a certain way. I'm just not doctrinaire. But I believe that who we are lives in physical reality. Yeah. And I was able to see it. Right. And so for me, that was an epiphany that at that point, I found that I could have a place in medicine, or I thought I could. And that if I was going to have a place in medicine, it would be in neurology, because that way I could learn about what this materiality of consciousness was really all about. Wow. Talking about, you mentioned a little bit that you wanted to be a playwright uh, when you were younger. What made you want it to be a playwright then? Well, actually, when I was younger, I wanted to be, a, I wanted to write anything, whatever. I wanted to be a writer. I was one of those kids that wrote terrible poetry in the basement when I was like wanting to kill my, not kill my, <laughs> wanting yeah. to express. You know, that was an out element of my teenage rebellion. And I also, um, I remember writing this like long extended, very delusional novel about 
um, this person that just travels out into this empty wilderness. So I bought into the empty wilderness myth growing up <laughs> in North America. And You're I, innocent and, then, and young. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing was, so it was like this huge big canoe trip down this crazy raging river into the middle of this forest where then I met this person who was you know, in front of a fire who was going to tell me what the meaning of life was. But that was the childhood novel. So (laughs) I'm so glad that I don't know where it is. (laughs) But so I'd always wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write anything. In university, I thought I would like to be a journalist because I was interested in politics and political movements. And I was an activist. And so I felt that that was the natural expression of the urge to write. Um, But none of those channels appealed to my parents. And I didn't have the courage to um, break their dreams shatter their dreams really yeah so then how did theater come about as a medium that like worked for you uh so it was a late discovery um I only discovered theater when I was in my residency so after you do medical school then you have to choose a specialty I already knew I wanted to do neurology so I I applied to study neurology in Toronto and of course I was going through this residency the Toronto program has a one-year research project that you must finish in order to become a neurologist and I said I can't do a research project it will kill me I will die what can I do instead what story can I sell them that will allow me to do something else because at that point the urge to write was just becoming overwhelming and also this was at the end of the Sri Lankan civil war so it was about 2008 2009 going into 2009 and my mind was just in all kinds of pieces. So I um, asked them if I could do a creative writing project for my residency project instead of research. Uh, and for, through some miracle, they allowed me to do it. And I, that's how I wrote The Enchanted Loom, which is about a Sri Lankan political prisoner survivor who ends up with a head injury and epilepsy. And then um, it's a story about a family living in Toronto with the aftermath of that, right? But that's that was born out of the residency research project. Mm-hmm. That's how I discovered theater. And as a writer, it, it was tremendously liberating because really in theater, you write dialogue or you write or you describe actions and you don't even describe action very much. Mm-hmm. That's mostly the domain of the actors and the d- directors, right? So you just hint at action and set some key details and, and you're just in the world of what is spoken or maybe sometimes imagined. Um, but it's in the form of, of, of what can be spoken. And uh, it, that was really great for me because when I had tried to write poetry or in the novel form, I just was bogged down entirely in the trees or the, yeah. the water yeah. or yeah. all these things that I was trying to fully encompass. And it, it didn't lead to good writing, I think. And, and so when I found theater, it was just so liberating because you kind of can recreate a dialogue that may occur in your mind. And I was always one of those people that was having conversations with people in my head all the time. So it, there was, and it was just, I found, finally found that I could write something that others could engage. Plus theater is amazing in terms of what, how it's really created because it's not an individual project. It yeah. is, the writer is not the same beast in theater as they are in anything else. I fully believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I really think that most theater is collective creation yeah. now, especially. Um, and the writer is sort of part of a um, process. 
And I love that. I love the fact that the work is reworked and vetted and benefits from the experience of others uh, from beginning to end. And, and how has working in theater and, and all these creative practices influenced you as, as a physician? So if you can think of it this way, every time you talk to somebody as a physician, you're kind of establishing their character, their setting, and a bit of a plot. It's true. Yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> so you're in a script already. So actually, most medical encounters have that structure for me. So I see them as very much, um, I think that the skills that I have as a writer of theater help me in medicine. And I think that my experience in medicine obviously informs the writing, although it doesn't, it's not always complimentary. I would say in the last three years during the pandemic, my writing has really shut down, um, except for some journalistic writing. And that's because it, medicine has overwhelmed creative space for me. Yeah. And we read, I think it was like a long article that you wrote about your experience in the pandemic. And it was beautiful. I cried <laughs> reading it. Oh. Yeah, it's just so interesting. The urge, the writer's urge, it sounds like you just can't escape it. So you might as well give it space in your life and like um, use those different forces in your life to like inform your writing. So I'm just wondering for you personally, like, What do you do when you do feel, do you remember feeling inspired and flowy as a writer? Because I know you just said the last three years have not really been much of that, but what has your writing practice looked like or yeah, when you feel a story or you feel that, that flow? Yeah, it's, I guess it's like, I'm, I'm a writer that needs structure. So I do actually do best in, um, at some point entering into a writer's um, residency. Like or a circle or like. Circle or something like that. Yeah. Um, which theater kind of gives you anyway, once you have a draft of something, you have workshops and actors and these beautiful people that are thinking so deeply about every single word. So that I think is essential, but the inspiration, it's usually, I don't know. I think most people will say this, there'll be an idea that pursues you somehow. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But somehow you can't, or some, because it's theater for me, sometimes it's a visual, mm -hmm. a visual. So in the case of the Enchanted Loom, it was the, the surgery, the neurosurgery scene that was the starting moment where, you know, I'd had an experience in med school where, and this is common, so awake craniotomies, where if you're trying to resect a tumor, you're trying to preserve brain that people need. And so they can sometimes be conscious during the surgery so that you can really make the boundaries of the incision as precise as possible and mm. not sacrifice things that cannot be sacrificed. So that was the visual that was the seed for the Enchanted Loom. And with um, with Rubble, there were two things. One was reading Lena's poem, Running Orders, mm -hmm. which partly because I have a son who plays soccer. And so I had this very vivid personal experience of sitting in that, watching that game where Messi misses his penalty And, 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 and what a kind of core experience that was for so many families yeah. and so many young kids. And to have that happen at the moment that your house is being targeted, I felt it was such a relatable experience for me. And it would be such a relatable experience for so many. And I think that's why that poem went viral in the way that it did. I think it was partly the idea that David is calling and telling you that your house is targeted and you have 58 seconds literally to get out. 
And the second piece that it happens in this moment that is so relatable and just so that should be like, it, it, it's such a normal rite of passage for kids to go through these things and be invested in that game and their hero lets them down, but it's okay because mom's made dinner, right? Yeah, there's like basic other things that are fine. Like they're, that is the crisis, not everything else. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Right. So that's what I, I think that was reading that poem. It just, that poem would not let me alone and I could see it. So when you see it, I think in, if you're a theater, a writer, then you want to make it. <laughs> right. So she, so Lena gave me that, right. And then I contacted Lena and asked for permission to try to write it. Um, and she agreed. And the other thing of the, uh, that, of course, led to rubble was having traveled to Gaza twice as a physician prior to that. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was the actual uh, memory of the rubble. So every time I see, you know, every single year they bomb Gaza one way or another. Mm-hmm. And so you see these reiterations of this of broken concrete and kids looking at the wreckage of their homes. Mm-hmm. That's the image. But for me, that's an image that I've seen and been inside. So that's another one that doesn't leave. Yeah. Well, for folks who aren't familiar with Rebel as a project, we just want to describe it a little bit for people who are listening. So using the theater, a community is created between actors and audience and the voice of the poet Mahmoud Darwish, the late Palestinian national poet. And this piece examines the old question of the meaning of poetry in the midst of war and the responsibility of those of us who read, hear, or witness their words. Uh, it's currently in development with Aluna, so we're very excited to... <laughs> that's part of the reason why Suvendrini is here today, to tell us a bit more about the project. Um, it's in development with Aluna and Theatre Pasmarai, with additional support from Pandemic Theatre and Nightwood Theatre. The play is based around the poetry of, like how you, um, Camila just mentioned, Mahmoud Darwish. And uh, when did you first encounter his poetry? I don't know. Fair. I think that I first discovered him in Egypt when I was in my second year of undergrad. I was studying history and I went to Cairo um, for, you know, like a student exchange. And I studied at the American University in Cairo. I fell in love. Um, the person I fell in love with is, was an Egyptian activist, and he was very much a fan of Mahmoud Darwish. So I have these memories of hearing that poetry, and I think that that is where I mm. uh, discovered Darwish. Um, so it was an old lover. The poetry is so romantic, so I I think that for me, one of the resonances of that poetry is it's so much of it is about love and absence. Yeah, it's so interesting this project like approaches poetry and war and and tries to understand like we said what is the meaning of them what do they have to inform each other and there's something about that that there's like war in my head is just so chaotic and cruel and for me there's something about the brain as someone who has not studied it that also feels chaotic but then poetry kind of makes some sort of sense and i wonder what you think about that like why did you want to talk about poetry and war, I guess? What, what do they have to do with each other for you? Yeah, I've thought about this a lot too. I, this isn't a complete answer. Yeah. One thing, so the tradition of poetry in the Arab world, world as well as in, in the Tamil culture is there's a tradition of oral poetry, right? Um, and of poets having, the, having people gather around them and they read their work out loud so you hear it. 
-hmm. And it's a very active participatory listening with nothing distracting you from the words, right? So it's just the words and your imagination. And there's a collective active imagining going on around these words. So what I think is that in that tradition, and when we think of poetry in that way, um, it puts you in the present moment. What Darwish wrote about in The State of Siege and in his other book, Memory of, I think it's called Memory of Forgetting, but he wrote it in Beirut under siege in 1982. There's a lot of description of present acts. Um, there's a lot of preoccupation with how the past and the future impinge upon the present. But there's also a lot of poetry that deals with drinking a coffee or making a coffee or the taste of coffee or the color of the sky as you watch it in the present moment. You see that in the state of siege a lot, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that in war as well, one of the ways that people cope with it is to really be in the present, right? The, the moment to moment survival and the moment to moment relationships, what's in front of you, because there really isn't anything else that you can control. There's very little you can control, but you, but you can, but people, who have, who experience it and who write about it. And when I was in Gaza in, uh, in 2002, there were raids at night and I was staying with a family. They were always up at night and they were um, cooking and talking together. And the present was just incredibly full within this. So I, I felt like that was something that they had cultivated to survive, but it was also a, a tremendous sign of their strength and their resilience but it was also narcotic almost mm -hmm. right it allows you to grab onto life and keep going so I think it's that I think that the that poetry more than any other form has this groundedness in the present if you're if it's if it's that experience of listening you're in the word it, it, in a collective setting and and that's I think why those things in my mind came together and how does the story of rubble relate to your work as a neurologist does it does it it doesn't at all <laughs> yeah you you said you went to gaza as uh with doctors without borders is that right no, no. i went with so I, the first time i went i was also in university and i actually went you know u of t had this program where you could go study at the hebrew university which mm. is in the west bank in mount scopus so i went there did that course And then I, you know, knew that there was more to be learned about the situation. So I threw, you know, meeting people on the street and various other things. I met a woman also named Tanya, who was South Asian. Who It's crazy because my first name is Tanya. I met this woman named Tanya who uh, had been working with an NGO in Gaza. And she connected me up with a family there. In fact, who worked in the museum that existed there at the time. Mm. And that's how I first went to Gaza. And on my way back, I was sharing a taxi with a father and a son. The son was traveling to Jerusalem for a medical procedure. And he had been shot, this kid, at, like at age 10. So we stopped every like hour and a half, every two hours for him to go to the toilet because he had no control over his bowel and bladder. So this was my another one of those images that has meant for me that this connection that I made with Gaza was not something I wanted to let go of. And I needed to process it. I, you know, coming from Sri Lanka, being I'm half Tamil and half Sinhalese, but I really grew up with my Tamil family, and this is my um, sensibilities unabashedly on this side. But I, so I could see the relationship in the experiences, 
and that's that's part of it but also that has always been something that uh I've, i always think of that father and that son so mm-hmm. for you to know this is these are how i think things stay with you the second time though i went back it was with the palestine solidarity organization in vancouver where i was studying mm-hmm. medicine and that was the time that rachel i can't remember her last name now there was an american uh, woman who was bulldozed by the israelis oh there's now a big foundation so there solidarity foundation that uh, pays homage to her she you know tried to stop a bulldozer from from de- destroying a house and they just went right over her and she died so it was it was at that time that those things were happening and it was with a palestine solidarity organization that was really palestinian so that that's how i and then i in in that setting i actually went and worked in a bunch of hospitals and learned a mm-hmm. tremendous amount from the palestinian physicians who were incredible mm-hmm. so i can see it's like there is a medical connection in that it's one of the things that brought you there but there's so many human stories that are just beyond like your role you know just as someone who's witnessing people yeah once you become a doctor then that's the most useful thing you can do in most places even here it continues to be probably the most useful thing I can do although I don't think it's the most important thing I do I think Mm. when I myself when I'm in my role as a mother is more important and my role as an artist is more important to me. I think that the transformative impulse in society comes from the arts and we cannot continue in this manner. And if we, and if changes to occur, artists' voices are, are, are going to lead that, right? Mm. We've seen there's a running theme in the way that you talk about your work. And it seems important for you to remind people that like physicians are human beings too. Like you are a mother, an artist and a physician, but you're also not perfect. You don't have all the answers. And there's like a human toll to medicine for not just the patient, but also the physician. I guess like, why is it important for you to humanize medical professionals? I mean, that's kind of a strange question. I I think they are humans, but it's just, yeah, it seems like something you're very passionate about. So I'm just wondering where that comes from. I think part of it is that, you know, there's a lot of criticisms of medicine and of physicians and their roles and their power, right, within the system that we live in. And and you can see that from the pandemic. There was a very, you know, Mm -hmm. physicians and public health authorities had unquestioned power. They also had had tremendous responsibility and are horrifically burnt out. And they accepted all of that, both the power and the burnout. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, what I'm trying to do by making people conscious of the personal costs for them of these choices is to shift to a model where responsibility is more shared, both with the patient and with other kinds of healers in society, where we pay attention to the social determinants of health and we don't think there's a pill for hypertension that's going to solve somebody working for you know 80 hours a week for 20 years and that's why they have high blood pressure right Mm -hmm. so if you realize that you have limitations whether they be emotional or physical then you realize that you don't have you can't solve these bigger problems alone you don't have that power you don't necessarily want that power maybe that power is something that needs to be held collectively physicians need to give up power and they they might realize that by seeing the costs that they are inflicting upon themselves and that will leave space for others to bring other forms of healing and for us to address structural problems that cause illness, disease, mm-hmm. suffering. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll ask you guys a yeah, question. So there was one question that I think needs to be addressed. Um, and I liked very much the one about, I don't know how you phrased it, but it was about me not being Palestinian. Yes. This is a question I have just because maybe I'll ask it. I think it needs to be asked. And I think when yeah. these questions are not asked, it's we do ourselves a disservice, right? Yeah. So just back to rubble for a moment. Yeah. Just about humans and being, yeah, not having all the power and that is a really wonderful thought to chew on power dynamics are all over also the project um the israeli project (laughs) uh and in rubble you are really dealing with that um face on and i just we have a question about solidarity because from what i've also seen of the project of rubble there's so many ways that like solidarity between different cultures and people is trying to be embodied and trying to be questioned and provoked. Um, so because this story is about Palestine and about a Palestinian family and people, you yourself you have said you're not Palestinian, but you've chosen to create this piece. So how have you approached writing this piece as someone who is not Palestinian? Uh, how does solidarity between people play a role in the development of this piece for you? Yeah, it's a really difficult question. Because there's so many different levels on which one wants to answer it. Yeah. Um, so there's the simple level of voice and whose voice should be telling this story. Right. So I do think this may be controversial, but I do think in theater, because of the collective creation process, we have um, the capacity to accommodate some of those conversations better. Right, because I'm not writing this as a novel that I'm putting forward about Palestinians or about Gaza. Right, Mm -hmm. what it is is if it's cast properly and directed properly, then everything that's said and done is mediated by a cast that are either Palestinian, ideally, or in deep solidarity through having done work with the Palestinian experience. Mm -hmm. Right, Mm -hmm. and that will stretch the piece and interrogate it and make it, and see whether it's up to the task. So that's one of the reasons why I like theater, because you can offer something up. And if you do it sort of honestly, without you try to uh, pull your ego away from it and give space to other artists to really ask their questions and to really say, well, this is, there's a problem with this. This is good. I relate to it even if they don't relate to it, is it important? You can still have that question and that that conversation, right? Um, because even among Palestinians, there are many different experiences, people who have lived in the diaspora, people who have moved from Palestine, people who lived have lived in Gaza, people who have um, varying degrees of language fluency and cultural loss, right? From, from this process of, of being removed from Palestine mm-hmm. and excluded from Palestine, really, I should say. So... I think that theater gives us some tools that are not available to other forms in the same way, which is one of the beautiful things about it. I think working with Aluna in particular gives us those tools because the perspective is always around decolonization and always about interrogating freedom um, and whether we're serving freedom and justice through our work. And so when you have a collective that can do the work that way and a director and we have an assistant director on this project as well with Rima, who can bring that perspective, then then I think you can move ahead still cautiously, right? Um, but you can do it. 
And I, I, I personally think that cross um, cultural solidarity between communities of color is is absolutely essential for to build the kind of world that we want in any of the areas where we're struggling at the moment. Mm-hmm. So I, I see this work as, as an example of that um, mm-hmm. as well. The other thing I wanted to say about it is this question of authorship and what is authorship. So mm-hmm. I also think, and this is again, this is my view, um, that you know, sometimes the author is more of a vessel than a originator. For me and my own writing process, I really feel like I must almost always am standing on the shoulders and just drinking from the fountains of other writers that have come before me, their words, their metaphors, their stories. Um, and yes, we so we need to be conscious of that, but we also I think we need to just constantly acknowledge it. That's my understanding of language and how it works. So I think that all writers do this, mm-hmm. but all of us have different perspectives on it. My perspective is really that, um, so so when, when I was working on this, I asked Lena if I could um, animate her poem mm-hmm. and and if I could use it as a seed to create characters and build a story around them. So she had put these characters, there was a family that she described, a son, a daughter, and a mom, right? And just for listeners at home, I wanna say Lena is the author of the Running Orders poem that we talked about earlier, is that right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Keep going. She's a brilliant Palestinian poet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I asked her for permission to do that, and then I kind of actually sent her drafts periodically and said, "Could you read this and tell me whether this is whether you like this or you don't like it, or what is your thought?" And so I tried to get feedback from an early point. The other thing was that I knew that the state of siege, the words of the state of siege, um, Darwish's poem were resonating and you know, playing themselves around in my head as I as I um, created this. And so I asked Fadi Judah, who's also a physician, and he's a poet and a translator, whether we could use his translations and whether he would potentially participate in the process. So the workshopping process through which the script was built also involved conversations with them. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about how, you know, if we when we do it, we'll, we'll need to publish Fadi's poetry, the translations, as well as Lena's, so that the audience is aware of the sources. Mm-hmm. This is very important to me. It's very important to me that there be that the audience leave with that as well, and they understand that there's a lineage of writers here that are in dialogue with one another. But these are their words, and they'll, they'll know what are mine, right? And mine are, of course, m- mediated by what the author, actors and director have have offered throughout the process. So. I think it's about authorship too. So what do you, who do you, what do you really think the author is? This relates to this question of who can voice something. I also think that when voices are actively suppressed, the way Palestinian voices are actively suppressed, you know, with book bannings and burnings and picketing of their theater and like all kinds of excessive um, methods. Yes. Then I think that it's our duty to also add to the, turn the volume up. I may have more ability to initiate a conversation that can then be amplified, taken over. It can provide, ideally it can provide a, um, a, po- a platform for mm-hmm. bigger conversation. Ideally we can contextualize this play with historical information, 
contemporary um, exhibits of some sort, whether online or in, in, in the theater itself that relate to what's happening in Gaza now, so that it's actually is making space for other voices. Mm -hmm. That would, that's ideal, right? So that's what you, what I think I, in my role as a non-Palestinian writer is to continually make myself make those spaces and know when to step back as well. It's beautiful to witness like this level of solidarity and clarity around it, because I feel like there's um, just a lot of attempts in a lot of art projects to collaborate with other people. But uh, the question of authorship is so good. Like what um, does it really mean to the people in the room and what, how do, how are we um, sharing that role in a way? And I think though, to be honest, it's easier for me to problematize authorship because my, uh, but because being a writer is not my only identity. Mm -hmm. You can have some space a little, in a way. I have another very firm, societally um, approved, respected identity. So it's fine for me to go around problematizing what it is to be a writer and an author. Right. Because <laughs> you don't have to take it as personally <laughs> right. as someone who's trying to make the rent. Mm -hmm. And so that's idea. the other thing, right? To be conscious of that. So there's reasons why people assume different positions around this conversation, which all right. have to do with power. Mm. Right. Yeah, totally. Talking about conversations in theater, every episode we ask our current guests to post a question to the next guest so we can keep the conversation going across practice and across borders. And our previous guest, Sohail Parsa, an amazing director, asked you this question. Mm -hmm. If you are a theater artist, why have you chosen theater? Why not film? What makes this art form so unique to you or for you? Um, I think I've in some ways, I've answered this question because I've yeah. explained that the collective creation process in theater is so unique. It's so, um, I mean, I'm a great um, admirer of Augusto Boal. I apologize if I mispronounce. And the idea that, you know, as we embody characters, if once we get the t t when we do that, we can change narratives. And these are narratives of our lives. Right. And that this can serve all kinds of transformation. So to me, that's the essence of theater is that. So for me, like to create a piece, I'm creating a piece that I I think is trying to imagine something different or I'm trying to tear something I don't like apart most often. Right. <laughs> and um, so it's active and and it's collective and it's imaginative. The collective part to me is key. Like there is a relationship between an author and a reader, of course. Right. And but and we don't do the poetry live reading uh, dynamic the way other other cultures still do uh, here in even in Toronto. But there's like a spoken word community that does. Right. Mm -hmm. So they keep that flame alive. And that so that would be another similar form. But I, I'm not enough of a poet to be able to do that. And I'm not enough <laughs> of a musician to be able to do that. So the theater suits me just fine. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So Vendrini, if you could ask a question to our next guest, who in fact we know uh, their name, I don't know if you know them, Victoria Mata, who's developing a piece about uh, cacao in Venezuela in a Luna's season. Um, what would you ask them? Okay, can I just free associate a little bit? Yeah. Okay, so when I think of cacao, what I'm really thinking about, it, it, it gives me a sensory experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering about how we translate that into the theatrical space. 
like mm. the smell and the sounds and I know we do things with sound and light but the tactile pieces and the smell of things like how do we make theater so really embodied for audiences I'm really interested in that and smell and cacao that really <laughs> lined up for me with that <laughs> yeah that's a beautiful question yeah yes okay great well we're gonna ask it to her excited to ask it great yeah. okay yeah. we'll ask her in the next episode so if you're amazing. curious about the answer you can pop it on your headphones in about a month amazing <laughs> i'm looking forward to seeing what you guys do with this thank you it was so much fun talking to you both we are speaking to you from the shores of this beautiful zaga egan known to some as lake ontario in toronto or dugarondo this is the ancestral territory of the Haudenosaunee or Longhouse Confederacy, the Anishinaabek Nation, the Wendat, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. This land is covered by the Dish with One Spoon Wampum and Treaty 13, also known as the Toronto Purchase. At Aluna, we remember that people can begin to heal when they are hurt. We are committed to artful participation in disagreements. We are committed to unsettling ourselves towards connection, respect, and justice for all people who now live in this city, which has been a meeting place since time immemorial. Radio Aluna Teatro is produced by Aluna Theatre with support from the Toronto Arts Council, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, the Department of Canadian Heritage, and TD Bank. Aluna Theatre is Beatriz Pisano and Trevor Shellness. Radio Aluna Theatre is produced by Monica Garrido and Camila Diaz Varela. For more about Aluna Theatre, visit us at alunatheatre.ca, follow at Aluna Theatre on Twitter or Instagram, or like us on Facebook. Miigwech and Nyawangoa. <laughs>